Hi, I'm Tammy Hicks-Jackson. Welcome to my podcast. I am a Christian pastor in the United Methodist tradition, and this podcast covers a variety of topics. You may find anything from Bible study and devotions to yoga and meditation from a Christian perspective to my thoughts on Christian leadership and the church. Look for the descriptions and the tags for each episode to find what you're interested in. And thanks for taking this journey with me. Let's jump into this episode. 1 Timothy is the first of three pastoral epistles in the New Testament. An epistle, it just means a letter. And the pastoral epistles are so-called because they are addressed to individuals rather than to churches. And the two individuals they're addressed to, Timothy and Titus, are pastors. So the pastoral epistles are 1 and 2 Timothy and Titus. All three are attributed to the Apostle Paul. Though they are different in both literary style and theological content from the letters to the churches, this is probably explained by the fact that he is writing to an individual rather than a group, and he is writing to encourage their leader rather than to instruct or introduce himself to the group. In the pastoral epistles, the church is called the household of God, and Paul is going to compare how the church should be organized and operate to the way an urban Roman household was organized and operated. He's going to talk about its internal practices, leadership, and the relationships among the household members. The goal is for there to be faithful, healthy congregations. Let's talk about Timothy and who Timothy is for a minute. Timothy is probably from the city of Lystra, which is in the region of Laconia, also called Anatolia. He may have been from the city of Derby, which is in Asia Minor, but he's living in Lystra. His mom is Jewish. His father is Greek. This explains why he was not circumcised. At one point, Paul is going to have him circumcised before he takes him to Jerusalem. He met Paul during Paul's second missionary journey. However, he was not converted by Paul's ministry. He, um, Paul visits Lystra for the first time on his second mission, on his first missionary journey with Barnabas. When he returns a few years later on the second journey, Timothy is already there. He's already a believer and is already a respected member of the church. But he and Paul bond. They form a strong relationship, and he becomes a companion of Paul's on some of his missionary journeys, along with Silas. His mother is Eunice. His father, his grandmother is Lois. They are both members of the church, and Timothy is the pastor of the church in Ephesus. 1 Corinthians 16.10 may tell us that Timothy is a little shy by nature. It may be that he's young. Um, or it may just be his personality. Paul encourages him to be bold, courageous, to not let anybody put him down because of his age. We know he is traveling with Paul during the winter of A.D. 57 to 58, when Paul writes his letter to the Romans, which we have as the Book of Romans. He's mentioned as a co-author in several other letters, including Second Corinthians, Philippians, First and Second Thessalonians, Colossians, and Philemon. And we're going to see that Paul asks him to come. Come see me one more time before I die here in Rome. I'm imprisoned. I can't come to you. Please come to me and let me say goodbye. 
Tradition tells us that he is the first bishop of Ephesus and that he dies in 97 AD when he is stoned by an angry mob as he tries to preach the gospel to a procession that is honoring the goddess Diana. Um, He was 80 years old at the time. All right, let's jump into the first of the six chapters of this letter. Paul greets Timothy, calls him son or child, which tells us that their relationship was close, that Paul is a mentor of his. And Paul must see some tremendous potential in young Timothy, and he does everything he can to draw that out. It seems as though he is really trying to establish him, perhaps as his successor of this mission to the Gentile believers. The greeting is grace, mercy, and peace. Paul, his traditional greeting in his letters is grace and peace to the congregations. When he writes to the pastors, he includes mercy. Perhaps he is reminding us that very often pastors need mercy. The main goal, or at least the most important goal, that Timothy needs to stay focused on is keeping his congregation theologically on track. It's very easy to drift, and the congregation is trying to drift in several different directions, and Paul says, here's the problem, we need to tighten this up. One of the ways they're drifting is by getting enamored with genealogies. Um, Some had given a a wild allegorical meaning to the genealogies that we find in the Old Testament. Philo was a key character in doing this, and his stories, his allegorical interpretation would have already been well known at this time, and some are getting very caught up by it. Paul also mentions myths or fables, or your translation may say legends. These would be rabbinical teachings that included um, stories about the Old Testament characters. So it tells us more information than we are given about their lives in Scripture. They were well known in the Jewish um, community. They were non-canonical, so they're not elevated to the level of Scripture. They were devotional works, but they include a lot of really inventive stories about the people in the Old Testament. For instance, one of them was the Book of Jubilees, which retails all of the events from creation to the giving of the law to Moses on Mount Sinai, and it expands upon the stories of the patriarchs. Now, supposedly, there was secret information, more law given to Moses on Sinai. He entrusts this information only to Joshua, who entrusts it only to certain people, as he was told to. This gets passed down. The rabbis add to it. Eventually, Rabbi Yehuda um, in the second century AD is going to finally write this down and call it the Mishnah. So this is before that is written down, but all of this would have been known and discussed in Jewish communities. So this is information that Jewish believers have that Gentile believers wouldn't. So it's even more that they don't know. And it kind of makes Jewish believers um, smarter, better, more gifted than Gentile believers. So it creates a hierarchy that we know Jesus came to level the playing field, not create more structure and hierarchy. These stories and this secret law 
um, that has been passed down, this secret knowledge is going to be widely discussed among rabbis, and the discussions about it are eventually going to be captured and called the Gemara. Um, it's completed around the 5th century um, in Babylon, um, and it's going to, together it's going to be called the Talmud. And the Talmud still exists today and represents the authoritative information and opinions of rabbis that supplement scripture but is not quite equal to it. However, this oral tradition, these this information that's being discussed, even Jesus alludes to it in Matthew chapter 15, verse 3. So I think Paul is telling us we need to be careful to differentiate between Scripture and interpretation of Scripture, that we cannot elevate opinion, speculation, or even conclusions to the same level as Scripture. Um, we do the very best we can to interpret and understand Scripture, but we want to be careful not to create wild allegations, allegories and theories about it. Paul knows that this could eventually divide Jewish and Gentile believers by creating that hierarchy, and it could absolutely be a killer of the entire mission to the Gentiles. There is a divine training plan, and that is the gospel taught by Jesus, and that has to be the focus of Timothy's mission and of the people of that time, and even of us today. We need to make sure we stay focused on the mission to which we are called, and that is to continue Jesus' work as Jesus did it. Um, in verses 7 through 11 of chapter 1, we have a list of vices, and the list of vices follows the same sequence of the Decalogue, which is the Ten Commandments. The irony here is that Timothy's opponents are disobeying the very law that they think they are interpreting and upholding. Now, it's really interesting, um, the list of vices that we have given here. False statements refer to lies. False oaths would be perjurers. So they're not only lying, but they're lying to the harm of someone else in a very official capacity. Kidnappers would be slave traders. These are people who deal in human trafficking. Fornicators, um, some translations say whoremongers. These are people who go after loose women whose sexual appetite is out of control. And sodomites, um, those who are, a literal translation would be defilers with men. These would be things considered unnatural desires. The church down through time has always been plagued by heresies and inaccurate conclusions. Um, we still have this going on today. We have the prosperity gospel, for instance, the idea that if you are right with God, you are healthy, wealthy, and wise. And if you are not healthy, not wealthy, or not wise, then something's wrong. You have sin or lack of faith. Um, it's a it's a perversion of the true gospel. Paul is now an apostle of Jesus, though he once violently opposed the gospel in word and deed. And these who are straying are not beyond hope. They, If they have good teaching, if they are loved and pastored correctly, they could be brought back to the right path. The phrase, this saying is sure, um, or your translation may say something uh, similar to that, but it introduces or concludes 
a summary statement of good sound doctrine. Jesus used the term verily, 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 I say to you, or truly, truly, I say to you, would have the same kind of meaning. It's not clear exactly what the error of Alexander and Hymenaeus is. Um, It could be the myths and genealogies that are mentioned earlier, or it could be another sin. We're just not given quite enough information to figure all that out, and it really doesn't matter for us today. The congregation there, Timothy, would have understood what Paul is saying. The reject in verse 19 is a nautical term for throwing something overboard. So the ship of their faith um, has gone amiss. Um, The ballast of their conscience means that they are spiritually adrift. They have thrown overboard good, solid, sound doctrine. The church has been used, has used the analogy of a ship throughout time. Uh, Many of the old hymns talk about the good gospel ship. And if you look in a lot of churches, if you look up into the ceilings, the top of the churches will often look like a ship, like the bottom of a ship, like an inverted ship. So um, even our architecture um, follows up on this analogy that we are the good gospel ship carrying the word of God. In chapter 2, We see that prayer is central to the life of a congregation. Since God desires all to be saved, they should pray for all. Um, Prayer helps us to live peaceably. It not only releases God to act because we invite God, we use our free will to ask God to get involved, but prayer also changes our heart toward the people for whom we are praying. It's very hard to hate someone and pray for them, to hold a grudge and pray for them. Leaders especially allow us freedom and opportunity to practice our faith and to live as God intends. So we pray for them, even if they're not godly leaders, so that we can live and exercise our faith. In verses 5 and 6 of chapter 2, this is an early confession of faith. Paul wants men to lift up holy hands. This could be a posture of prayer. Um, to pray with your arms outstretched or uplifted. It could literally mean um, arms outstretched to lift up holy hands. It could also mean he wants them to act and pray without anger, without contentiousness. The way we get along in the church is we are not angry. We don't debate violently. We discuss. Um, we treat one another kindly. In other words, behave decently. Women are to dress modestly. Um, Not only modest, um, not just the length of the skirt or the the garment, but to not be obsessively elaborate or expensive in the way we dress ourselves. But we also need to be modest in the way we handle ourselves, especially with men. In other words, don't doll yourself up and flirt with men. The purpose of the church, the purpose for why we gather... We are not a dating service. Um, this is not a, a social cocktail party. This is this is the church that gathers to worship God, to grow in faith. Um, women are to learn in silence and submission. This is one that raises our heckles often. Um, some translations say that the wife and husband are used here, where it says the wife should learn in silence and submission. 
And they say that makes it about a particular relationship, the marriage relationship. Um, In verse 11, the word silence could be better translated quiet, to learn quietly, because that's the way it's translated in verse 2. And in verse 12, authority, this word is used only here in the Bible. Everywhere else that it is used, it means to dominate or to master. Um, I don't think it is referring, it can't mean that women are to never talk in the church. That would contradict 1 Corinthians 11, which gives instructions for how women are to pray and prophesy in the church. But I think what it is saying is that women should not dominate, master, or control men, um, especially or particularly their husbands. I believe that what Scripture teaches is an egalitarian relationship between men and women and between husbands and wives. I think what this is saying is, women, you should not try to manipulate or control your men. You don't do it with the way you look and the way you dress. You don't manipulate their emotions by flirting with others. You don't withhold sex to get what you want. You don't hide things from them. You have a good, healthy, open relationship with your husband. You get along. Y'all seek to work together. I think it's also saying earlier that men shouldn't always be angry and wanting to fight with their wives or with women. Let's get along. Let's have a congenial relationship. Remember, this is to reflect an urban Roman household and how it operates. Um, There's also a chance that the false teachers that have been mentioned in chapter 1 were targeting rich women because those rich women could support them financially. There could be social and financial gain to getting these women to buy into all the fables and fantasies. Hey, look at the things I can teach you. So as a rich Greek woman, I can give you all this secret Jewish knowledge that can make you a better believer and can help you rise within this congregation, within this new religion of Christianity. And having been persuaded by persuading the women, the women could then go persuade their husbands. And so then their husbands become students, paying students, of those, these who can impart this secret Jewish wisdom to them. Um, and he references the fact that Eve was persuaded by the serpent in the garden, and then she persuades Adam. Um, He makes this statement that women are saved in childbearing. Um, Eve was reconciled to God by giving birth, by when she gives birth to a child. And go back and take a look at Genesis 4.1. Birth, uh, creating new human beings, is the unique role of females in the species. Um, But also remember, as he says this, that Jesus was a descendant of Eve. Part of the curse was that the woman would desire the man um, and he would rule over her. So this idea of dominant and um, of one lording it over the other is a result of the curse. And Jesus came to reverse the curse of the fall of sin. But also Eve's son, Jesus, would be the one who would bruise the head of the serpent. He would be the one who... Um, reconciles all of humanity with God. 
So it can also be referring here to the fact that Jesus has taken care of this. Okay. This whole section is talking about times of worship within the church, that both genders are to be quiet, gentle, respectful, to show reverence for God, respect for the authorities of those who are in leadership, and kindness to the other members of the church. Um, It's interesting here that women are actually ordered to learn. Women learning was not a high value in society at the time, whether we're talking about Jewish society or Greek in the Greek-Roman world. um, Women just... Having women learn just wasn't something that was considered necessary, but here they're ordered to learn, and it is the only imperative or order in the whole book. There's a Jewish saying that talks that illustrates how women were not considered suitable for deep learning. There was a Jewish saying that said, it would be better to burn the Torah than to teach it to a woman. So, Things are changing for women in this role here in life and in the church. I'm going to make a second podcast to cover 1 Timothy chapters 3 through 6, so check out that one for the rest of Timothy.